Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And on this week's show, Marianne will be joined by Mumta Jane Valderrama, who is the Senior Vice President for Operations at Mercy for Animals, and who will fill us in on a religion that I have been very intrigued by for a very long time, Jainism. Yeah, me too. I, you know, I love doing interviews about religion, even though I'm not particularly religious myself. And I just find it really interesting. And Jainism obviously is the religion that that I think most of us like were drawn to it in various ways because it does take this really, really firm view about being compassionate and what that entails. And that includes not eating animals. So yeah, this is a fascinating interview. I'm so excited that Muntha has has really found her way into the animal rights movement. She's going to be an enormous benefit to to Mercy for Animals and to animals in general. So on the flock bonus segment this week, I'll be continuing that conversation with Mumtha. And if you're a flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up. But you can always also find it on the flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it and you want to, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you are a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern. That makes it this week, meaning if you're listening to this in real time, we just had it yesterday. I'm sure it was wonderful. It's at 4 p.m. Eastern. We have some super inspiring guests, some recent podcast guests, backed by popular demand, and some really cool conversations about activism and animals and life in general sometimes. So if you are a member of the Flock, and thank you if you are, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And you can set up one-on-ones with me as well if you are interested talking about your activism by emailing that same email address, info at ourhenhouse.org. So before we get to the interview, there were a couple things we wanted to chat about. First of all, we have spoken for the entirety of our henhouse history about this next subject, which is labels. And whether we should be using the word vegan on ourselves, on our food, plant-based, meat-free, whatever. And this is an evolving conversation spoiler alert, I sort of think we can use whatever labels we want. I don't really care as long as we stop eating animals. But that being said... Well, that is really not the point. The point is what label do we use to get other people to not eat animals? Yes. Thank you for that distinction. Let's talk about this article from Economist. Yeah, it, it, this kind of freaked me out. They did this survey or test or research study on the consumer behavior in this is for North America and how they behave when they're purchasing what this article calls plant-based foods. They tested out five different terms and this was specifically for hot dogs and the terms were meatless, veggie, plant-based, animal-free, and vegan. Of course, vegan is the one that would draw me, but I understand that you know, that's not necessarily true for anybody. So you're never going to believe which one of these won. I, I can't understand it. And the, the most appealing term to consumers of these five terms was meatless. Like, I just think that's weird. <laughs> like, like it doesn't even give any, and it's, it's so negative. It just says what's not in there. I do think it's really heartening in a lot of ways that, that, that it's really appealing to consumers just to find out there's no meat in something. I mean, it, it does indicate a certain hostility <laughs> towards meat. I it, it just really weirded me out. It's never what I would guess. I don't know why people don't do what I think, but of course, if people did what I think, the world would be a different place. But, but yeah, I think it's the term that maybe we should start considering using in certain contexts. What do you think? Like in in selling foods specifically. Like instead of calling ourselves vegan, we should call ourselves meatless. No, 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 <laughs> meatless Marianne. Well, there is a nice alliteration to it, but. I could be like jackass Jasmine. Anyway, <laughs> but that has been conflated in the past in veganism. Like people I have, I remember in the past have sort of conflated what you should call a product with what we should be labeling ourselves. And I've always disagreed with that. I think it's a totally different can of vegan gummy worms. <laughs> I, I kind of agree, but I, I kind of do use the same term. Uh, I, I use the term vegan. I, I call myself vegan and I call the food vegan if it's vegan. So yeah. 
So why I may agree, I don't really follow that. But you don't you don't work in e-commerce. Like like one of the hats I wear at Kinder Beauty, there is which is a vegan, cruelty-free, clean beauty subscription box. There's like constant uh, research being done as to like what to lead with. And vegan is still very sellable in, in terms of the type of cosmetics. Like people are interested in vegan cosmetics. Oh, you see vegan all the time on cosmetics now. Right. Everywhere. Vegan, vegan, totally. like as if people were vegan, which they're not. But apparently in cosmetics, it works. And I was in New York City this past weekend. And I've said this before, but that was years ago, obviously, since I haven't been anywhere in years. Mm-hmm. And and it still seems to be the case that loads of just little restaurants, little pizza, but not vegan restaurants, little pizza parlors, little you know, sandwich shops have an ad for something like we have vegan pizza or, and they use the word vegan. I saw it uh, numerous times, whereas, you know, I'm told elsewhere that using the term vegan is not the way to go and that people who label themselves vegan and who who are vegan are you know among the most hated humans on the planet <laughs> that's another another veg economist article people who call themselves vegan the most hated people on the planet veg economist by the way is a great site if you're interested in the new food movement it tells you so much of what's going on with vegan foods it It's really extraordinary. I highly recommend it if you're not signed up to it. So switching gears to one of our most famous and lauded vegan slash meat-free slash plant-based slash meatless slash every other word you can think of to describe badass celebrities, Joaquin Phoenix, as reported by Veg News, why Joaquin Phoenix's next Oscar could be a vegan film Apparently, Joaquin Phoenix bought the movie rights to Free the Animals, which is the 1992 book written by Ingrid Newkirk, PETA's president. So this is interesting. I think it's fascinating. I would love it if they made a movie of this. I mean, this is mostly about work of the Animal Liberation Front. And, you know, this had a lot to do with laboratories. It was really when the animal rights movement was somewhat more focused on labs, animals in labs than animals in factory farms. The Animal Liberation Front would, you know, in disguise, the famous balaclava-wearing animal rights activists would sneak into these labs and and actually destroy property and 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 rescue animals. I mean, it's a very exciting book. It's it's an extraordinary story. I would love it if they made a movie about it. I was just talking about the Animal Liberation Front to my students last week, and comparing them to the work, the current work of DXE, Direct Action Everywhere who take a different approach and who they do sneak in because you can't get in unless you sneak in, but they film themselves and and it's always on factory farms. No, it's not actually, that's not true. They've rescued some beagles from laboratories, but mostly on factory farms. So they sneak in and they, they, you know, they try to stay hidden while they're there, but then they release footage without disguising who they are and expect to be arrested. So it is a very different philosophical and legal approach. But, you know, it's part of the same trajectory of of this kind of activism. And, oh, and DXC does not indulge in property damage. Their main purpose in being there is to film and rescue animals. You know, and, and it's specifically designed so that they feel that they are not breaking the law because they have a defense to their trespass and their quote unquote theft of these animals. So it's a different approach and a, a different legal strategy. But yeah, part of the same trajectory of we, we have to stop like pretending like we can fix this by being polite. Yeah, absolutely. I would love it if there was this movie. I have to tell you. Small little tangent, but when you just said, I broke the law, do you know what I just thought of? No. Okay, I thought of Joy Askew's song, I Broke the Law. Oh, yeah. And so if people heard me typing in the background, it's because I just Googled it. That's a great song. I haven't thought of that in a long time. I I don't think I said I broke the law. I don't want to like be bragging here because I I didn't break the law. (laughs) I mean, I I wouldn't be ashamed if I had broken these uh, or allegedly broken these dreadful laws. But yeah, that wasn't me. That could be our like audiogram for this week. Marianne Sullivan. (laughs) Anyway, 
I will put a link to the show notes because Joy is an incredible animal activist and longtime vegan and like unbelievably talented musician. And she wrote this song about breaking the law for for animals. And it's called I Broke the Law. And it's unreal. It's so good. In fact, when we had the Our Hen House TV show, she came on and and sang it. So we do also have a video of that somewhere in the ether. Anyway, that was a tangent, but a good one. All right. Well, I want to get to this week's interview. So let's do it. Mumtha Jane Valderrama is the Senior Vice President of Operations at Mercy for Animals. Prior to working in animal rights, Mumtha led operations for various healthcare companies and startups and authored the thriller novel, A Girl in Traffic, about human kidney trafficking. In addition to telling us about her turn toward working for animals and her current work at MFA, Mumta will tell us about the Jainism culture, which teaches nonviolence toward all beings. She will be joining Marianne right after this. This episode of Our Hen House is brought to you in part by Meow Meow Tweet. Meow Meow Tweet creates vegan personal care for everybody. Their products are always ethical, low-waste, handmade, and cruelty-free. As the first brand to introduce 100% backyard compostable deodorant sticks and lip balms, their skincare, body care, and deodorants are designed to minimize plastic consumption, and they're offered at an accessible price point. Meow Meow Tweet takes a slow food approach to skincare. All formulations are artfully blended by a certified aromatherapist and herbalist. Ingredients are certified organic, they're non-GMO, and they're from strong or renewable plant populations. And they also avoid materials that harm the ecosystems of animals and people, which is what we're all about at our henhouse. Products are made in small batches by hand in their California micro factory. Meow Meow Tweet is also a certified B Corp, plastic negative, and a climate neutral company. How much do we love this? Meow Meow Tweet redistributes funds to causes in the categories of social justice, animal justice, and nature. Our Hen House listeners can get 20% off at meowmeowtweet.com by using the code HENHOUSE. Again, you get 20% off at meowmeowtweet.com by using the code HENHOUSE. Welcome to our Hen House, Monta. Thank you, Marianne. Pleasure to be here. It is really a pleasure to have you because you are following an interesting career path. And let's just start off by telling people briefly about your current job. What is it that you do for Mercy for Animals? Sure. So I'm called the Global Senior Vice President of Operations. So my job is to support a lot of the behind the scenes type of work. It's the finance team, logistics, the tech team. And most recently I've added and get to support our research and impact teams as well. And we're going to go into some depth on all of the reasons that you care about animals. So I'm not really asking that at the moment, but I'm just really interested in why you decided to transition from a successful career. I think you were in healthcare to working in animal rights. And I think that is something that so many people dream of doing and you managed to pull it off. What incentivized you to make this leap? This was a job that fit my passion and my interests. You know, I had been in the workforce for 20 some years, was really passionate about healthcare and continue to be so. When I first started my career in healthcare, I joined from the standpoint of wanting to help the uninsured and underinsured Americans maybe get better access to care and did a lot of great work in that space. But as I moved further and further into my career, just really felt like I wanted to do something that was more mission aligned with how I lived my day-to-day and where my thoughts were on a daily basis. And that was really in the value of ahimsa or nonviolence. So at a particularly frustrating point in my corporate career, I kind of came home and looked up vegan jobs on Google and yeah. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of people listening can identify with that. Yeah. And then I, I, I saw this job posted. I really thought it was a long shot and you know, it was very serendipitous that it all worked out. Yeah, I'm not sure of exactly of the timing, but it seemed to have been sort of simultaneous with the pandemic. Is that part of what was going on for you? A little bit. 
my frustration with healthcare didn't have as much to do with the pandemic, but more the caution of being out in um, doctor's offices and clinics during the peak of COVID was very anxiety ridden. I have a young daughter at home. I live very close to my senior citizen mom. So there was a lot of anxiety associated with my day-to-day job and my function. So I was certainly looking for something that would maybe pull me out of those situations and scenarios because of the pandemic. But it, the timing just happened to be also when I was no longer feeling a calling in healthcare as well. As you mentioned, this isn't like animal rights was not a new concept for you. And this is what what we really want to talk about. Well, we want to talk about a lot of things, but but I really want to talk about growing up in the Jain religion. And I would love to explore how that has shaped your worldview. And tell us a little bit about where you grew up and about your childhood. And then and then we can get into Jainism in more depth. Sure. So I'm the daughter of immigrants from India. Um, I'm one of three siblings. So I have an, an identical twin sister and an older brother. And my sister and I were born in Memphis, Tennessee. My parents immigrated from India to Florida. They were gators. They studied in Florida. They um, moved to Chicago where they have my brother. And then my dad was one of the first early employees of Federal Express, which is based in Memphis, Tennessee, which is how my family ended up in the deep south in the 70s. It was Maybe my fourth or fifth year that my dad was recruited by a competitor to FedEx that was based in Newport Beach, California. And so my first memories are growing up in Southern California, Los Angeles, and that's where I consider myself to be from. But throughout this whole childhood and into my adulthood, Jainism was very strong in my values, my beliefs, my upbringing. I think that was partly my parents really clinging to their culture and their past, moving to the United States, just really also trying to fit in, but trying to hold on to every last thread of their, everything that they knew as well. Yeah, of course, that is the immigrant challenge, isn't it? And for those who aren't familiar at all, I think probably most listeners have heard of Jainism, but we probably don't know a lot about it. So can you just give us the basics? Just tell us what it is. So Jainism is probably like the fifth largest religion in India. It's definitely considered a religion, although if you really get into the learnings and teachings, it's more of a philosophy or a way of life, kind of a way of being. And the main tenet in our religion is nonviolence to all beings. And that the word for that is ahimsa. And that's a word I think a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with. So practicing Jains are vegetarian by culture and by religion. There's a more and more growing body of genes that are moving towards veganism as well. And some people consider it to be a very strict religion. So from a food standpoint, in addition to being vegetarian, the very strict adherent genes don't eat root vegetables. When you pull out the root vegetable, you not only are killing the microorganisms that are associated with kind of this violent act of pulling a root out of the ground, but you're also killing the plant as well. So it can't, like a potato root could no longer flourish additional fruit after you've pulled it out of the ground, where if you pick an apple from a tree, the tree can continue to bear fruit. So that's kind of the general philosophy around ahimsa. It's very rooted in food, but it extends much further than that. So Jane's refrain from leather, silk, wool, all of the things that you'll hear vegans also refrain from and more and more Jains are also moving away from dairy too. Yeah, no, I really want to get into the dairy issue. That's really interesting. I also find so interesting the root vegetable thing, you know, and, and I think many people have seen images of Jains talking about it being very strict. Strict is a word that everybody likes to to apply to people who try to be kind. <laughs> We're very strict, strict feet and strict change. But I have seen like, you know, pictures of uh, sweeping bugs out of the way in in very, and I just totally understand, like once you understand how it happens, because once you really try to be nonviolent in the world that it's hard, very hard to be nonviolent, it can lead you down some some very difficult paths. And it sounds like for many Janes, and perhaps you included, I don't want to make assumptions, like certain lines have been drawn you said with the root vegetables, it seems like some people, some people adhere to that. Some people say, all right, we're drawing the line in a different place. Is that, am I right? That's absolutely correct. It's a balance. It's a dance of, I think, practicing Jains have draw a line 
for what feels right for them. Some people can adhere to all of these rules that that exist in a James Sum. Some others decide to accommodate other things. But I, I want to go back to something that you said that's a really good point about using this word strict. And even I'm in the habit of labeling James and myself as strict. And I think it's really important to move away from that and maybe think about it as disciplined. Strict sometimes has a negative connotation to it. And I think disciplined can go the opposite direction or just it's just more factual in terms of the connotation that it brings. Yeah. I think even disciplined sounds a little harsh, to tell you the truth. I kind of like careful. Huh, that's interesting. Careful. But definitely, (laughs) well, that just popped into my head, so maybe it doesn't work. I don't know, but definitely not strict. That's just just a bad word. It is a bad word, and I I thank you for pointing that out. I think it it was, when you said it, you, you kind of brought attention to it as well. There are a few other concepts within Jainism, in addition to Ahimsa, which, you know, are somewhat familiar to us through, I guess, through Hinduism, there are similar similar words used and similar concepts sometimes, though it's certainly not the same religion. But, but another is karma. Can you just talk a little bit about the role of karma in Jain belief? Yeah, absolutely. So we Jains believe in reincarnation, and the path to reincarnation is through accumulation of karma. And so every act, every thought, every word, every deed— accumulates karma in the individual. And some people think of it as like negative karma and positive karma. It's less of a scoreboard and more just that certain acts accumulate certain amounts of karma. And the goal in Jainism is to escape the cycle of births and deaths by continuing to accumulate good karmas and eventually escaping the path and the circular pathway of reincarnation into what's called nirvana or moksha. Attaining nirvana or moksha means you've escaped the path, you're a fully enlightened person. And in Jainism, we bow to 24 people who attain moksha or nirvana at some point in their history. These are people that lived thousands and thousands of years ago. And those are the people that Jains bow to as the examples for us to live by. So another interesting point that you may or may not know, Marianne, is that it's you know, really technically an atheistic religion in some ways. We don't believe in mortals and immortals. We believe in these 24 beings that we bow to as examples, but that we all have the potential to obtain that level of existence as well. Well, That's so interesting. I wish we could talk for hours about Jainism and we we can't, but uh, I I always find religions really interesting. It reminds me a little, I I don't want to like so you always have to be careful talking about religion because you never know what will be a bad thing to say. But, you know, I grew up Catholic and it reminds me, I mean, though, obviously it's a very de- deistic religion. It also has this concept of saints and it sounds a little bit similar to that. Saints are people who lived, but, you know, who have reached this special status. Uh, and it sounds like, you know, listening to it for a few minutes, it sounds like Hinduism, but not like Hinduism. So really a fascinating topic. But what we're here to really talk about is who has a soul within Jainism? And then we'll get into what is the effect of that belief on eating? In Jainism, we believe that all living beings have souls. And that's the reason that we abstain from violence towards them. So at a, the biggest level, that means being vegetarian. At a more micro level, like to your point that um, Jain monastics sweep bugs, sweep their path in front of them as they're walking to avoid stepping on any creatures that might come under their feet. Um, It's the reason that Jain monastics also do not wear shoes when they're walking outside, inside, on any type of terrain, because they're more likely to kill the microorganisms or these small insects and bugs that come under their feet if they're wearing shoes. We Jains also, when we pray, we wear almost like a COVID mask, but it's called a mupati or a mask. And that is to avoid the hot breath from disseminating and killing more of the bacteria that are in the air. So, so there's all these sorts of things that James do to prevent our own individual violence towards the world or impact and footprint on other living beings. And that is, a, again, in the effort of limiting the negative karmas that we're accumulating in the hope of also then minimizing the harm that we expose others to as well. How does it really play out when it it comes to food? So with food, it really is centralized. And this is what 
as a child, like young James, myself included, are taught be you're, you're vegetarian. And the reason for that is because of the harm that you're causing to animals. So we know all the different reasons that people choose not to eat meat or not to eat animals. For James, the main teaching is to not commit violence to another living being. Like it's wrong to do that. And so we that's how we refrain from eating meat. Jainism is an ancient philosophy and way of life. And at the time that it was written, there was no such thing as factory farms. So cheese and dairy were considered acceptable. The animals from which that sourced those products were sourced the milk, were treated more humanely than animals that are in factory farms today. And so this continues to be a little bit of a a growing point for practicing Jains. There's a movement of people that believe in being vegan amongst the Jain community. There's There's others that are more reluctant or still learning that path. And so that's that's something that I continue to be involved in and learn and grow from. But being in the work that I am fully aware of factory farms and the impact that those the impact of those and the sourcing of dairy and cheese from factory farmed animals, you know, myself and the people that I'm sending ripples forth within my own community are are moving towards veganism. Yeah, that was definitely something I had planned to ask you. Is it is there hostile? It's hard to imagine people following this religion being hostile. But I, you know, I guess humans are humans, even if they're chained. Like, is there hostility around this issue? Is, is is or is it just really treated as a different, you know, difference of opinion? Is it a difficult, a difficult process? You know, one of the beautiful things about Jainism, one of the other tenets, in addition to ahimsa, is called anekantevad. That's another Sanskrit word, and that translates to multiplicity of viewpoints. So the objective there is to be open to and accepting of lots of different opinions and ways of being. So there's a saying in Jainism that translates to live and let live. And, you know, in a more colloquial way, you might say, you do you, I do me. And within the the discussion about dairy versus non-dairy and cheese versus non-cheese in Jainism, there's definitely a continuing conversation and I think it continues to evolve. And I'm so grateful that Jains are open to having that conversation. There's certainly tension, you know, we're human. And so there's certainly been tense conversations around this that strict Jains, you know, that believe that it really adhere to the ancient doctrines point to the fact that those 24 beings consumed milk and they even advocated for it while others say, you know, the the way that the industry has evolved, we just no longer can justify having these products in our homes. So I think this will continue to be an evolving discussion amongst the gene community. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. What about the new vegan meats? How do you feel about them? How do Janes in general feel about them, about mimicking animal products? Yeah, this is this is a really good topic for Janes, Marianne. So growing up in a, in a vegetarian household, I've, I've been vegetarian. By the way, if it's of interest to you, I grew up eating meat. I ate meat until I was four or five years old. And that was, my parents made that decision so that my siblings and I would fit in. So again, we were in the deep South in the late seventies and my older brother was already kind of being bullied for lots of different reasons. And so my parents thought that this might be an easier way for us to fit in or not one less thing that would, that would not help us to like stick out in a crowd. My sister and I, when we traveled to India for the first time, we were five years old. And I remember when we were landing in New Delhi, my mom turned to us and said, don't tell anybody in India that you eat meat. So this was like, it, it quick, we quickly realized it's like a source of shame. This is something that's wrong and, and bad. We were in India. That trip was about a month. And my mom told, I don't have a memory of this, but my mom tells my sister and I that coming back and, and every day after that, we just wouldn't touch it. And that was the end of it. We wouldn't look at, we couldn't look at it. We didn't want to touch it. We were very sensitive to it. And we just said, no, this is not for us. And I don't still think I had the awareness of why. I just, I think I associated it with shame or like my family would be shun me or not be proud of me if they knew that I ate meat. Maybe we should just send every kid in the world (laughs) (laughs) to visit the jink in India for for like a couple of weeks. And uh... I think about this too. I think I'm one of two or three Jains that practicing Jains at MFA. And 
I do think that there are some learnings there, like just like sometimes those of us in the AR movement think about other really successful movements like the fight against tobacco a few decades ago and like learnings from that. And how can we take that and emulate some of those ways to make to in our movement towards animal protection and animal freedom. I wonder if there's learnings too around some of these ancient cultures that grew up with this philosophy. I don't know what those are yet, but but I certainly think there's something there. Oh, I totally agree with you. And I think that we will find that there are more of them than than we realized that this is an issue people have struggled with for as long as they've been people. But getting back to the question you asked me about the mock meats, and I'm sorry. I mean, right. That's okay. It was all good. <laughs> what I was trying, what my long-winded answer was that because I didn't grow up eating meat, I'm not, I'm one of the people that's not looking to replace it. So the mock meats, I think, are a wonderful thing for the, for animal protection and for the world of veganism, for the people that are looking to make a change and a transition they do creep me out a little bit. I've been in situations where maybe that was the only option at a restaurant. So I ordered it, but when it was in front of me, I just felt very insecure, uncertain if this was the real thing or not, and just, and couldn't partake, which is a real nod to the people making these products. Yeah, um, you know, so, yeah. So they're doing great, but just not for me. Yeah, no, I can totally understand that. I think for a lot of people, even who did grow up eating meat, they, not for everyone, but they can kind of be a transitional food. They're a way to transition away from meat and then to sort of develop your taste for vegetables and, and, and other foods. So I can totally understand that. Now, you mentioned that your, your parents, which it's just sort of a, a really sad story that they felt that, you know, just to help you fit in, you should be eating meat. And I can totally understand why that's the case. And it can generally be pretty tough to, to fit in as a child of immigrants. And you also had the, this added feature of a religion that nobody had ever heard of and, and that you were vegetarian. So once you stopped eating meat, did you get a lot of, uh, after this trip to India, did you get a lot of pushback as a child? And I, I'm kind of curious, were you Jains on your own or did, were you a part of a community? So yes, part of a community, but not until later in my childhood. So my first years of life, we were just Jane to my family and not part of an, a Jane community in Memphis or in Southern California that came a couple years later. And yes, I have very vivid memories of being discriminated against or bullied or mocked both by kids and adults for being specifically vegetarian, not Jane, but for being vegetarian. I do associate that diet choice with, of course, my culture, but it also I do associate a lot with, like, there's a lot of topics, as you know, around racism in the vegan movement, but it's bigger than that for me. It's just racism and bias towards being vegetarian, culturally vegetarian as well. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I know you have a daughter. Do, do you find that things are different for her than they were for you? Very much so. And, I, and I, in such a wonderful way. She is very confident in her vegetarianism. She she doesn't question it. She sees her friends around her eating meat and she has a very strong averse reaction to that. In, so, in some cases, she'll come home and she'll say, mommy, I really like this girl at school, but she's a meat eater. For, in her mind, she's six and that's that's an insult. Um, or, yeah. or something- It is in my mind too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or something that she's like worried about for her friend. Like- I, kind of like she feels this responsibility to show her the way. And and I'm so grateful for the diversity in thought in public spaces now that didn't exist when I was in school. So schools are much more sensitive to all of the different dietary needs and preferences of families, allergies as well, the different sources of protein. That's, of course, like an ongoing battle for those of us. And we all, we all know and can relate to that. But schools, I think, in particular, becoming more sensitive and open to that. And even when we go out, you know, I think we we can all relate to the experience that more and more restaurants at least have one vegetarian option that can be veganized or a full vegan option as well, which is, I'm really grateful to see that kind of progress. I wish that more of that existed when I was coming through it, but I also am feeling very proud of being part of making those changes happen and being one of the 
one one of the early people in this space. I agree. And I, I totally agree that it's so exciting to see it happen. It does occasionally occur to me that things are so much better for vegans. They're not that much better for animals, if at all. But one probably has to come before the other. Speaking of your daughter, in addition to your religious background, obviously another driving force in your life is feminism. And why do you feel it's so particularly important for the animal protection movement to focus on women, both as in hiring women and targeting women with their advocacy? So one thing that I love about the work that I do specifically at Mercy for Animals is that we are so sensitive to and um, inclusive of using language like people who identify as female coming from a very inclusive standpoint. We are very committed in the movement to a diverse workforce and diverse teams. Um, That's women and any other kind of demographic that's been marginalized in the past. I think feminism and and a message towards the female audience is especially important because for better, for worse, and maybe you will get some pushback in this, and I'm very open to that feedback, but I think women are still driving a lot of the food choices and food decisions for families. And that's not true in every case, of course, there's going to be exceptions to that and that might be shifting, but historically that's been the case. And I think I recently did look into this and I think that still continues to be the general trend. And so I think that there's a lot of value in messaging that is inclusive to all of our potential audience, but in particular towards the female voice. And I see that both in how we recruit and at in the animal rights movement and also the messages that we're putting forth in trying to convey the work that we do in animal protection as well. I mean, I certainly think it's true. Whether it should be true or not is a totally other question, but I certainly think it's true that that women are probably making most food choices for families. And and also I, I just think it's true that the in spite of the many wonderful men within the movement, it has always been a predominantly female movement. So I totally agree with you. Another factor, and this has to do a lot with with leadership, I think. You mentioned in a recent interview, the data show that women are more likely to not speak up in meetings, are more likely to apologize while articulating a point, and are more willing to be interrupted. And I know that these things are true, and I believe that they are, well, not true of everybody, obviously, but but I believe that they they are in many ways cultural. Like, it's not just that women don't want to speak up, it's that the culture makes it harder for them to do that. So what can an organization do to make sure that women are in that atmosphere that encourages them not to take a backseat as perhaps they've been brought up to do? So the first thing is, I'm going to borrow a borrow a lesson that I learned from a comedian that I follow, Lily Singh. She recently did a wonderful TED Talk called A Seat at the Table. And creating a seat at the table is a first step towards elevating women in leadership roles. And then what enhances that is creating a table that isn't wobbly or chairs that aren't wobbly, which was the main point in this TED Talk. And I really encourage everyone to go check it out if you're interested. It was just at the end of March that it came out. Women have been taught, like my generation, to just be grateful for having the opportunity to be on a leadership team or to have a seat at the table. I'm not talking specifically at MFA, but some of my previous jobs, just to be grateful to even have a seat. But then once you're in the seat, being expected to quiet your voice or fit in, and that kind of defeats the purpose. You know, the next step now is, okay, women are getting more seats at the table, but how are we making sure that we're elevating their voices? One thing that I'm really particularly grateful for and really appreciative of at MFA that I've observed is some of the male coworkers and activists, I've noticed them hang back in meetings, that they won't be the first to jump in when we're having a discussion. They'll create space. So bringing awareness and having individualistic awareness, I think, is wonderful. And pointing it out as a recommendation, if we're feeling that there's a lack of that, I think is also it really speaks to the culture of an organization that's open to having that kind of conversation. And I, and I see that as something of real value I've benefited from. And I particularly feel this acutely because you add the layer of being part of the global majority as well. Coming from a patriarchal culture, I was very much taught to be soft, to quiet myself, hang back. And all of those things are, by the way, completely against my nature. 
And so that has been a continuous struggle for me in my in my professional life, for sure. Yeah, and even if they aren't against your your nature, which, you know, I'm sure for some people they are and for some people they aren't, which is, you know, completely fine. Like when you're an activist, you, if you are a retiring person, you kind of have to overcome that. When your organization isn't helping you overcome it, that makes it even harder. I know MFA is is kind of one of the leaders in the movement for opening its doors to members of the global majority. Was that an important feature for you? Yeah, that was definitely an important feature that they were looking for all different types of voices. And that continues to be the case. And I mentioned this a little while ago. I really value that about my current workplace that I did not I did not have as much of in any of my previous work environments. And so again, when I was mid-career making this shift, in addition to looking for an organization that aligned with my values, I was also really, it was really important to me to find a cultural fit as well. Um, another really appealing factor of MFA specifically was that it's led by a female. Our president, Leah Garces, is somebody I really respect and value her leadership. And this is my first time working for a women-led organization. And it it does make a tremendous difference. And I see a lot of a lot of power in that. So you left a really successful career to do this work. And of course, the animal protection movement really needs to draw from people who not only have the passion, but have the skill set. And in addition to pursuing diversity, how can the animal protection movement attract more people who do have that education and experience to add value to the movement? What do you think that people are looking for that would allow them to make that jump? I think it's important to just acknowledge too that I was in a place financially and with my family where I could make this change because in the, the for-profit sector, on average, the salaries are, um, you know, 20 to 30% higher, maybe more. And so I think that's an important point because that's not, that's, that's privilege. That's not something that maybe everyone has the opportunity to do. So just wanted to put that caveat out there. But I do think that people are in general looking for, for workplaces that are more aligned with their values. And I'm seeing that more and more with the generation behind me, the Gen Xers, the Gen Zers. And that, you know, people in my generation or, the, or my parents' generation, a lot of times view jobs as, as a job. It's a place to go to, to do the stuff, to earn money, to be able to have the lifestyle that you want. Whereas I think more and more people now in a really wonderful way are demanding that they're spending the majority of their time at work and they're doing something that they really care about or passionate for. And so I think the more that we can appeal to people's value systems and beliefs, get people aligned with our value systems and beliefs early on, which is a lot of the work that we're doing at MFA and in the AR movement as a whole, I think that'll continue to perpetuate this pool of, of talent. Yeah, no, I, I think those are really important points. And the more I think about it, the more I realize how important it is. And even for young people starting out, it's important to... Try not to get yourself in that position where you can't, which is not possible for, for many, many people, but where you can't make a move to take a lower salary. If if at some point in your career, you decide, I want to do something better than this with my life. So, yeah, I, I really hope that's the direction in which not only the animal rights movement, that the world is moving, because, I mean, it would be good for improving the world and good, just good for people's mental health. And I'm so excited that you had an opportunity to do it. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us, especially, well, it was all really interesting, but the stuff about Jainism is just mind-blowing. So really, thank you for sharing that with us. Do you think, all right, I have one more question. Do you think there's a place within Jainism for people who aren't Indian, for people who are not culturally, uh, from, you know, as Buddhism has um, has grown in the West, or do you think Jane is a specific cultural phenomenon that really doesn't have a place for newcomers? No, I absolutely think that Jainism is an accessible philosophy and way of life for people of all backgrounds and age and, and demographics, and we welcome that. It is a predominantly Indian religion, meaning Jainism and Buddhism started roughly about the same time in India, and Buddhism, interestingly, spread throughout mostly Asia and now lots of parts of the world and isn't really practiced as much in India. It's still there, but in a much smaller footprint, whereas Jainism ended up being really contained within India. And the expansion of it is has been because of Jain families immigrating to other countries. 
but it hasn't really grown to include people like people outside of the Indian culture have not really adopted Jainism or that come from Jain families. But I absolutely think there's a place for that. I also think that because it is a way of life more than a religion, there are lots of people who are probably practicing Jainism right now without a lot of awareness of that, especially people in our movement in their philosophy and way of life. So definitely. And there's Jain centers. We call them Jain centers or Jain temples in almost every major U.S. city. And of course, we have an online footprint too. But if that's of interest to anyone, I personally invite anyone to reach out to me to learn more. This is not a cult. It is really a decentralized religion and way of life that I think a lot of your listeners could probably really relate to. Oh, that's fascinating. I I hope some people look into it. And thank you for sharing all of this with us, uh, Monta, and, and, and for joining us today on The Hen House. Thank you for having me. I'm Miyoko Shinner of Miyoko's Creamery, and today I want to share my love story with you. But first, I want to let you know that you can get 15% off your next order at miyokos.com with offer code HENHOUSE15. Growing up, my father and I would travel to faraway places in search of cheese. Ripe cheese, stinky cheese, velvety, soft cheese. It was an obsession we bonded over. Our shared love for cheese took me to France, Italy, and nearby Sonoma. As I got older, my tastes remained the same, but my values changed. I became a true lover of animals, not as ingredients, but as living beings. In those days, there was no way to satisfy both my palate and my soul, so I started making cheese myself by culturing plant milks instead of animal milks. Through trial and many errors, through the noise of naysayers and through a commitment to compassion and craft, I made something I love, and I'm here to share it with you for you to share with your loved ones. At Miyoko's Creamery, we craft the finest plant milk dairy products in the world, right here in the heart of California's famed wine region, Sonoma. Through our craft, plant milk cheese and butter, we honor traditional dairy making methods while finding novel ingredients with nature's bounty. The food we make is made of love for the planet, for all living beings, and for you. With love, Miyoko. 15% off your next order at miyokos.com with offer code henhouse15. Anxieties are rising. All of my stories this week involve the DXC protests at the Minnesota Timberwolves games, which I'm sure you've heard about, but I'm just going to talk a little bit about some of the reactions to them. First of all, from Candace Buckner at the Washington Post, this is the one that got, I think, the most attention. How did Glue Girl bring her protest onto an NBA court? Privilege. Now, this author makes some excellent points. She makes the point that that NBA games are incredibly well policed and that that it would be hard for a person who is black. And, and she doesn't say this, but I would also add a person who is male, probably harder uh, to to get onto the floor. But what is really her point here? She says, she starts off by saying, privilege looks non-threatening and unassuming. It blends in long enough to be out of mind before it reveals its true audacity. It looks a lot like the animal rights advocates who have taken Minnesota Timberwolves games hostage, using the canvas of the court for their performative displays of protest. Uh, All that is true, but the words hostage, performative, you know, are a little... uh, uh, and she points out that the women have the financial wherewithal and backing of their group, direct action everywhere, to fly into these cities, get into the arenas, and pay for pretty decent seats. Uh, yeah, you had to spend some money to do this. I wouldn't say the DXC is rolling in dough of all the animal rights groups, but yeah, it costs some money. So what? But the woman also possessed the white passing skin tones, a far greater currency in America, that provide courtside access, no questions asked. Well, yeah, that's true. But... Like, what's your point here? Well, I mean, it's it's a point that, you know, it, that other people uh, who don't look the same as, as who don't look like young white women probably couldn't have made it into the court. But what are they doing that's wrong? Couldn't you just address the fact that it, instead of sounding critical about them, that they're using that privilege to bring attention to the plight of probably the least privileged creatures on the planet? 
They have the privilege to protest. There is the freedom to casually walk down 18 rows. This is also all completely right. She does point out that one of the um, one of the protesters, Alicia Santorio, has an Uruguayan father, which I, I guess, you know, would she says that she's kind of presenting as a white woman and she's not quite sure. And an Italian mother, which, you know, I think most people count as white. So I'm not sure what her point is. She does point out and she did a little research here that Alicia Santorio also protested in Black Lives Matters protests. But. Her real point is that, quote, unless, of course, you possess the features that automatically eliminate you in the biased mind as suspect, it would be way too challenging to get onto the court during a game. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And she talks about the time Masai Ojiri, the president of the Raptors, couldn't manage to get onto the onto the court of the team that he was the president of, which is, you know, absolutely disgraceful. But what's your point here? What's your point? I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't be so upset with this one, but it it just seemed to be that that she was just upset that these people were allowed to protest and and other people would not have been allowed to protest. But shouldn't we use our privilege to the extent we've got it to try to do good? I mean, these people put themselves at enormous risk. But she was never shoved or disrespected during or after her act. In fact, she said Arena Security and Timberwolves guards Patrick Beverly were incredibly kind as her glued hand was setting on the court. Uh, Sports can be a valuable platform to amplify an idea. And protests performed on the turf, the court, or an Olympic medal stand can force people to sit up and listen. Tommy Smith and John Carlos raising a fist, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. These were protests against racial oppression that sparked conversation and influenced change. They were subtle acts, silent. Not the sledgehammer disruptions from animal rights advocates who want to save the chickens. Yeah, there's a tone here. Uh, But it gets much worse, I assure you. Uh, This is from Deadspin. If only these protesters at Minnesota Timberwolves games cared as much about Philando, Castile, and George Floyd as they do chickens. We just established from the other article that one of these protesters had also been protesting in the George Floyd uh, protests. But this writer who is uh, named Karen Phillips doesn't seem to, that's, C-A-R-R-O-N. I, I think this is a, a man. Um, if you care about gender, I don't know. In Minnesota, chicken lives matter more than black ones. What? What? I mean, already, you know, like there's a problem here. Over the past few weeks, animal welfare activists have have disrupted three of the Minnesota Timberwolves playoff games in two cities in an attempt to bring awareness to the serious matter of poultry. In a state in which it's professional basketball team is making only its second postseason appearance since 2004. Well, now there's something really important. Activists have decided to use this stage to get the public's attention due to a cruel and unjust system that mistreats, check notes, chickens. Like, should we really be putting these two causes in opposition to each other? Is it either black lives or chickens lives? Like, do these issues have anything to do with each other? You know, of of course not. Of course not. So what's really going on here? So where were these people when Philando Castile and George Floyd were killed by the police? Well, as I said, we just established that one of them was out on the streets. I don't The other two may have been as well. But like, if there's one thing that we did get, I mean, I, you know, racism is rampant. And I don't think the protests probably had you know, much of an effect. But if there's one thing we did get when George Floyd and Philando Castile, but certainly George Floyd was killed by police is we got protests. We got worldwide protests. We got enormous protests uh, in the middle of a, a pandemic. That is one thing that was not missing this time. So what are you talking about? But uh, he goes on to says, I guess their deaths weren't inhumane enough for them to take such actions. Because you know what does more harm than the bird flu? A systemic and racist system that allows the police to do whatever they want to black bodies. Do we, re- like I said, do we really want to put these these uh, these issues in, in opposition? Is there any reason to do that other than that you, you just really don't care? And now we're at a point where some are acting like chickens are more important than the people that eat them. What? I guess that's why this is so sad. I guess that's why protesters picked this sport. 
they might as well try to get them. I mean, he's talking about basketball because he says the most ironic thing about these protests are that they're taking place on courts in a black league that used to have Black Lives Matter on it just two years ago. They might as well try to get them to focus on the lives of chickens. Oh, it's so like this makes me so crazy. So crazy. What the hell? Like, you think there are no black people who care about the lives of chickens? Do you seriously think that they all just agree with you that chickens are apparently like worthless and we shouldn't care at all about them? (sighs) Activists at Timberwolves games protest avian influenza depopulation. But vets say it's the humane choice. It's not too surprising that this this gem comes from Ag Week. The subtitle of the article is The currently circulating strain of highly pathogenic avian influenza spreads quickly and depopulation is seen as the most humane method to make sure poultry suffer as little as possible and to keep the virus from spreading, said Minnesota State Veterinarian Beth Thompson. Yeah, this is mostly an article about Beth's uh, opinions. And they're talking about the protests. And then they point out that the disease spreads quickly. Depopulation is seen. I like the way that says is seen. They don't say it is the most humane method. They say it's seen. <laughs> Protecting themselves from a libel suit by the chickens. I don't know. As the most humane method to make sure poultry suffer as little as possible and to keep the virus from spreading and hurting more birds. Thompson said officials follow the American Veterinary Medical Association guidelines for depopulation which described depopulation as, quote, the rapid destruction of a population of animals in response to urgent circumstances with as much consideration given to the welfare of the animals as practicable, as practicable, i.e. as costs as little as possible. Uh, so they just talk about how bad avian influenza is, which, you know, I, I'm, I'm on board with that. We shouldn't be raising chickens and then we wouldn't have avian influenza and how they can't use foam because this is a great one. Water-based foam is the most common depopulation method for turkeys because chickens are in cages and foam works better for turkeys because they are ground-based birds that are not usually kept in cages, she explained. Well, maybe we shouldn't be keeping egg-laying hens in, in battery cages. Think about that. <laughs> like, like you're now using the fact that they're in battery cages to use an even more inhumane method of slaughtering them. You know, obviously not all chickens are in cages, just... uh just egg-laying ones and not even all of them anymore. So that's a that's bullshit, total bullshit. In pets, veterinarians and owners go through a long process to determine that euthanasia is the humane option for an older pet that is suffering. We call it a good death, Thompson said. Well, what the hell does that have to do with this? Depopulation among birds, which, yeah, is allowed by AVMA guidelines because the AVMA is, is owned lock, stock, and barrel by the factory farming industry. And uh, they also, the AVMA guidelines also suggest that you don't let the the human population know about what's happening. (laughs) Keep it a secret. And this is really nice to know if you didn't already know this, because avian influenza is a foreign animal disease. What the hell does that mean? I mean, what the hell does that mean? It's a foreign animal disease. Well, it's here and we knew it would come here and diseases go from one country to another. But they think it's a foreign animal disease. Now you'll hear why. USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service takes the lead on and pays the costs of depopulation and disposal, as well as cleaning and disinfecting facilities. Well, isn't that charming? Also, USDA pays an indemnity for birds that must be killed, as well as some other losses, such as eggs that have to be destroyed. However, USDA says says those payments, as well as covering the cost of removing the virus from the premise, do not make up for all the losses incurred by producers. Well, I mean, I would suggest since this avian influenza is basically an inevitable result of raising raising birds for food, uh, that we shouldn't be paying any, like, my taxes have to pay for this? I want to scream sometimes. Actually, I want to scream all the time. Thompson said it is important for the public to remember that whether the flock in question is a large commercial operation or a small backyard flock, there's an individual or a family and a community that is tied to all of these. And the stresses go beyond financial ones. The stresses extend from farms to others who work with the farms, including feed suppliers. We've got some farmers right now that are going through a lot of stress, she said. They raise these birds for a purpose. Yeah, they raise these birds to make money, to kill them in six weeks and if they're if they're raised for uh, meat and to 
keep them in torturous surroundings and steal their eggs if they're raised for eggs and then kill them after a couple of years. Yeah, that's the purpose. So they can make money. Like, go away, everybody. Not you guys. That's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listener.